Hey, first in best dressed, pop quiz. What's the first thing that comes into your head when you think of Jonah? Fish or whale, right? Like, like it is possibly the easiest Bible question ever. Um, Jonah is a really unusual book, especially amongst the minor prophets in that way. Uh, if you ask the average person in the street or even most people in a church uh, what they know about basically any of the other minor prophets, uh, you're likely to come up empty, right? I mean, uh, just right now, first in, best dressed, Habakkuk. What you got? Jesus. Come on, Darren. You know, <laughs> you know, Zephaniah, or even like something longer, like Zechariah. Um, you know, very significant books in the Bible, by the way. Usually, though, they're not areas of the Bible that people know much about. And yet, ask any given person about Jonah. Go into the street today and just say to someone, hey, if I said the word Jonah to you, what do you think about? And, and I think nine out of ten are going to say to you, uh, a big fish, a whale, I guess, a fish, a whale, some, something like that. Um, but, and here, here's where our, our children's books about Jonah have let us down a bit. Are we getting a bit of an odd ringing sound? Yeah, that. Cool. Um, although there's a fish in Jonah, no denying the fact, Jonah isn't about a fish. Not, not even central to the story of Jonah. And primarily, Jonah is not even about Jonah. Jonah exists to point us towards God. And, and in doing so, it becomes an intensely relevant book for us today. A book that drives us to live as the people of God in a new and powerful way. Because as we see our God and who he is, we are changed as a people. In Jonah, we find the God who is mighty and merciful. The God who is sovereign over all and lavish in his mercy towards all. Well, across January this year, as you may have guessed, uh, we're going to go through this little book of Jonah. Let me encourage you, as we do this as a preaching series, I kind of do this at the start of every series, but this is an easy one. Give it a read. Give it a few reads. I mean, you can, you can crack through Jonah. Uh, if, you, if you have a look at your Bible, I believe this is the same in our, in our pew. We don't have pews. Church Bibles here. Um, but, you know, that's Jonah right there. I don't even have to turn a page. You can, you can read it few, through a few times in half an hour. Um, and it's, it's an amazing book to read. You know, you will not spend Jonah going, goodness, this list of names is long. You know, <laughs> you'll spend it going, what's going to happen next? Uh, and what, what we're going to see again and again and again in Jonah, that Jonah points us towards, pushes us to trust and to believe more and more in, is the God who is mighty and who is merciful. And in a bizarre way, this is actually even where our story begins today. God calls to Jonah and he says, Jonah, go to Nineveh and call out against it for the evil, their evil has come up before me. And Jonah runs away. Now, understand, this isn't some guy who's running away. 
You know, it's not like God showed up to Malcolm. I'm going to pick you out of a hat here. Sorry. And, you know, on Tuesday and goes, Malcolm, go to Nineveh. Like this is Jonah, the prophet of the Lord. No offense, Malcolm. Um, Jonah, the son of Amittai, is actually a biblically recognized prophet. He actually shows up in 2 Kings chapter 14 as a prophet who comes with a really relevant message at the time. Usually in the Old Testament, there's a bit of a pattern you can see unfolding in in Israel um, where the kings, they're going to become unfaithful pretty easily. And the, the priests are going to follow the kings often. And the people, the people are going to follow along with the priests and the kings. And the prophets are the ones who stand out because the prophets are the ones who are faithful. You know, when you get to the New Testament and, and they look back to the faithful of the Old Testament and say, here are the, here are the ones you persecuted. Uh, who, who are they going to say they persecuted? They're going to say, you know, your fathers killed the prophets. Because the prophets are the ones who you could rely on all of the time to faithfully follow God, even if the rest of them didn't. And yet, here is Jonah demonstrating the catastrophic unhealthiness in the northern kingdom of Israel at the time. Because even Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, does a runner when God tells him to go. We're told... In fact, he doesn't just he doesn't just like try to avoid God. He does everything he could to avoid God. He he goes to Joppa and he gets on a ship to Tarshish. Now what's interesting about Tarshish is Tarshish is in Spain. And and like if you get a map and you get Israel and you put Spain and you find where Nineveh used to be, like they're just the opposite directions to each other. One of them is west, one of them is east. So Nineveh Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, by the way. They were an, an ancient empire. We'll get a little bit more into who those guys were. But, but it's the opposite direction of Tarshish. So uh, Jonah, Jonah goes to go to Tarshish. And he's not just running away from Nineveh, though. Notice that. He's running away from God. Like, like isn't this situation falling apart when the prophet's trying to get away from God? It says so there in verse 3. It says, he paid the fare, went down into the boat, well, went down, uh, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. What's going on here? This This is a confusing start to an Old Testament book. On first glance, you know, it might actually seem fairly simple. We might just think that Jonah is scared. Um. And that would be understandable, actually, if, if, if you think about it. Uh, we'll look a little bit more at this in a sec. But Nineveh is basically the enemy. If you want to encapsulate what Nineveh was to Jonah and to the people of Israel, Nineveh are the bad guys. Uh, it would be understandable if Jonah was hesitant to go there. Because they're scary bad guys. They're an empire. They're huge in the ancient world. They are, at this point, the empire in the ancient Near East. And, and what's funny is that's not actually the reason why he runs. Uh, there's three reasons, actually, why Jesus, uh, Jesus, Jonah, uh, runs from Nineveh and from God. First, most important, Jonah knows who God is. Yeah, he's the prophet of the Lord. and He knows who is the God that he is following and who's sending him. He knows that God is 
is merciful. Jonah is going to make this explicit later in the book uh, when he takes the declaration of the character of God, which we see in Exodus chapter 34, and he makes it a, a kind of a rebuking insult towards God. And he says, I knew you were like this. You were going to be merciful and gracious and slow to anger. I knew you'd do this. I don't want to kill that too much for Darren's sermon coming up. But Jonah takes that. He makes it a complaint in chapter 4. Jonah, as the prophet of the Lord, knows that God has never sent him with a message which wasn't intended to lead to repentance and mercy. Again and again, isn't this what we see in the Old Testament? We don't see a lot of waves of repentance from the people. There are some. But whenever God sends his prophets, typically to Israel, condemning their actions, certainly, but they're always calling them back. Return to me and I'll return to you. Sound familiar? Because it comes up in more than one of the prophets. Never failing to call out evil, but always in order to lead to repentance. So Jonah knows who God is and Jonah knows why God sends him places to tell them about their evil. Because God is merciful. And so he knows why God is sending him, because he wishes to show mercy to the Assyrians. And that kind of leads us to number two, right? The second reason why Jonah runs. He knows who God is, number one, and he knows who the Assyrians are. Now, we don't know who the Assyrians are. We'll put that out there. We, we in our modern day, we're we are a few thousand years after this point in history, about... about 2700 let's say um 2750 um but but Nineveh is the capital city of a empire which we've discovered an awful lot about actually through archaeology in the last 100 years or so 150 um and what we've discovered is somewhat unsettling so so Nineveh capital city mightiest city of the Assyrian empire it's a serious city and it is a stronghold of evil. A literal stronghold, mind you. Uh, so, so like a few hundred years after this, a few hundred years after the Assyrians fell as an empire, you get an account that we have today from a Greek general who retreated through the region, and he runs into the walls of Nineveh, and he's never seen anything like it. They're so huge. They're like he, he describes them as, uh, now I know this in feet because the guy I listened to, but it's 15 metres thick. Like, like get that, that's, that's half of the length of this building in thickness. And about 30 metres tall stand our building up on top. That's, that's how tall it is. Right? So that end to that end, that's 30 metres. 32, but you get the gist. It is a literal stronghold the likes of which the world hadn't really seen. You know, Babylon was this, this kind of culture city and they had the gardens and stuff, and it was quite the stronghold itself. But Assyria is next level. You know, maybe another way to put it is maybe three of the town hall on top of itself. Yeah, something like that. Built without powered machinery either. Can you imagine that? Like, like that, that, that's mind-blowing in and of itself. I don't want to distract too much, but, but anyway... But it's not just a stronghold, it is a stronghold of evil. 
Um, we think we experience some of the most rotten behavior from people in, in history today. And there is some really rotten stuff that happens in the world today. Don't get me wrong. But the Assyrians are astounding. Uh, ask a historian next time you run into one, because we all run into historians all the time. Uh, ask them, I think this would be a good way to find out. Ask them, which historical empire would you rather fall into the hands of as an enemy, the Nazis or the Assyrians? I reckon any historian who's worth their salt is going to answer, yes, I would rather fall into the hands of the Nazis. I'm not a historian. I would. Um, at least the Nazis killed people quickly, usually. In a time when people and empires were pretty barbaric to each other on the whole, Assyria made violence and destruction into an art form. Literally, actually, they made it into an art form because they would make giant pictures of the horrible things they did to people and they'd put them up in the entrance foyers to their palaces so that as you walked in, you knew how this was going to go if you did this wrong. And God says to Jonah, go to them. Mercy. I want to show mercy to these people. Possibly within Jonah's lifetime, from what we know in, in 2 Kings, Assyria is going to be the nation which would sweep in through the northern kingdom, where Jonah calls home, and carry them into exile. Destroy the northern kingdom. They're never going to recover from that. I mentioned before that we hear about Jonah in chapter 14 of 2 Kings. In chapter 15, Assyria starts invading. It's, it's hard to really get an idea of just how appalling the prospect of going and declaring mercy to Nineveh would have been to an Israelite in the days of Jonah. I hope I'm getting this across. We don't have enemies like them in Australia. We just don't. Um, maybe a weak comparison would be if you, if you were living in London in World War II, maybe during the Blitz, right? And God said, go to Berlin and declare my mercy to you. But all this to, to say, do you see Jonah's dilemma here? Jonah knows who God is, that God is merciful and God is gracious, that he sends his prophets to bring about repentance and grace. And Jonah hates the Ninevites. Which brings us to number three. So Jonah knows who God is. Jonah knows who the Ninevites are and he hates them. But he fails to understand who he is. Jonah fails to see that he himself is on a level playing field with these abominable, murderous Assyrians. He is a sinner equally deserving of wrath and equally in need of mercy and grace. Here's the thing. God's mercy will always, always be offensive to anyone who doesn't accept their own equal and unqualified need of it. Have you experienced this? Either someone comes to faith that you resent, or you think could never be saved, or should never be saved, who doesn't deserve to be saved, or, or there is someone who, who you just could not have a category for them being saved. 
I'm sorry to say, Christians are very much not immune to this issue. I remember being in in a child safety um, mandated reporting course once about, let's say, 12 years ago at a step. Um, And, uh, you know, we were in there. And, you know, the things you're talking about in a child safety mandated reporting course are abominable things, right, that people do to people. And it was a church-run course for, for a bunch of people from a bunch of different churches. And I remember sitting in this room and they were talking about it. And this one guy goes, uh, you know, I know, I know Jesus is about grace and mercy and all, but I'm, in, I'm first in line to crucify these guys. He used the word crucify. And like, in some ways I understand, right? People do horrible things. The things that people do are offensive, are they not? The brokenness, the evil that comes out of us is offensive. Detestable. I I remember being told by another pastor about a, a serial rapist from a prison who came to faith in Jesus Christ. And and something inside me like Part of me went, hallelujah, and part of me went, oh. Part of me went, how would I sit in church with that guy? Like, like how would that work? And yet, without qualification, I am equally in need of God's grace to that man. Here's the realisation. I am offensive. I am detestable. I need God's grace and I receive it abundantly, without limit. Every day I receive it. So, so often when we run from the mission that God has sent us on, it is because we fail to realise this or to, or to really realise this, I suppose. We might say it, but not even realise it. God's might and mercy towards me is breathtaking. Today, the grace that every believer receives today is, is breathtaking. We are unqualifiedly equal to every sinner in our need of grace. To every drunk to every rapist, to every murderer, to every spiteful neighbour, to every person of every sexuality, unequal, uh, unqualifiedly equal in need. John Newton, it's funny, we sung that song today by John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. At the end of his life, said to a visiting friend, my memory is fading, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. That's where we need to live. But praise God, right? He's, He's not done with Jonah at this point in the story. Jonah runs and the might and the mercy of God pursue him. I love what happens here. It says that Jonah was going away from the presence of the Lord. And what are the next words in Jonah? But the Lord, (laughs) Jonah ran away from the presence of the Lord, but the Lord knew better. But the Lord was not to be escaped from. 
He doesn't get away. God's might and God's mercy pursue Jonah. God is not some tribal deity that you can go to Spain and get away from. We see the might and the mercy of God. First, don't we see the God who is in control, the God who is sovereign, the God who is mighty. Jonah intends to get away from the presence of the Lord. He must have known better. But anyway, God sends a storm to remind him you can never escape from his presence. And, you know, as the storm rages, we don't just see the might of God, but the weakness and the impotence of all other gods. The other men on the ship are crying out to their gods, it says. Isn't this a nice picture of a pluralistic society, what's happening on the ship here, right? Isn't isn't this how people want it to be today? where everyone can believe what they want to believe. Everyone can call out to their own deity. You believe your truth. I'll believe my truth. But wait, there's a problem. None of the other gods answer. None of the other gods can answer. We might place our hope elsewhere, but in the end, there is only one true God with the power to save, to carry us through, to rescue us. There is only one God with the might to act. The sailors wake up Jonah, you know, shake him out of the sleep. They cast lots to see who's responsible. And by the hand of God, the lot falls to Jonah. This is kind of the equivalent of drawing straws, in, you know, if you want to think of it that way, and believing that someone or, or something is, is overseeing the process. These men are desperate at this point, and they turn to a desperate measure. The ship looks like it's going to fall apart, we read. Imagine how you would feel. But when they find out who Jonah is, that he is, he fears the Lord, not just that, he's the prophet of the Lord, uh, of the maker of the sea and the dry land, he says. Now imagine sitting on a ship about to fall apart and this guy says, well, I'm running away from the guy who made the sea and the land, incidentally. When they find out what he's done, that he's running, you know, He's running from the almighty God. They ask, what can we do? Jonah says, throw me in and the storm will end. Now, just pause there for two seconds. How does Jonah know that? Like, How could Jonah possibly know that the storm will end? Like, if if God's purpose was to judge Jonah and destroy Jonah, then God could have done it with the storm. And he would have still died and left the storm going for another half hour, right, and and make sure he's gone and deal with the problem. Um, How does he know it? It seems to me there's only one logical answer to that question. God told him he's a prophet. Here's Jonah, who is actively running away from God in that moment. And he finds himself delivering a prophetic message to pagan sailors. Even here, as the prophet runs away in the middle of the storm of God's discipline against him, we find that God's merciful purposes are being fulfilled through him. The sailors do as Jonah said. I mean, you know, they they try. They, They try to row. The storm gets worse. They can't do it. They throw him into the sea. And try to imagine this if you can, because it's like, it's like, it's, it's very similar to when Jesus calms the storm, right? And you read it and you go, what would that have been like? The storm just stops. 
you know, the, the sails flapping, the winds roaring, the sail is ripping apart, the mast looks like it's going to come down, you're rowing but your rowing does nothing, the rain and the waves are beating your face and slapping you all over the place uh, and, and the ship is filling with water and creaking and cracking and you see splinters of wood going everywhere and then silence. It's like a drip, drip, drip from the little bits falling off. As Jonah falls into the sea and we read he sinks into the sea, we've got to imagine he was dressed like an Old Testament prophet. The wind dies, the rain stops, the sails fall limp. And these pagan sailors are changed because God is merciful. And the change is big. Look at this. At the start, they are crying out to their gods, right? We read that. Now they give up on the other gods. They call out to Yahweh. When your Bible has the Lord in in all caps, like small caps, that's Yahweh, the the personal name of God that he gives them in Exodus. Um, They call out to Yahweh. They fear Yahweh. They sacrifice and they make vows to Yahweh. The one true God is glorified now. These guys are saved as they trust in Yahweh. These hardened sailors, worshippers of false gods, are saved as they encounter the one true God. Even though he has thus far been such a monumental failure, Jonah's sacrifice reveals to these men the might and the mercy of the one true God. There is a God who sent the storm. There is a God who can calm the storm. And in this moment, what we see is a backward falling shadow of Jesus in Jonah. In the sacrifice of Jesus, we see very clearly the might and the mercy of our God. As he gives his life for us, as he is thrown into the waters of judgment by going to that cross for us, we see that our God is mighty to save. That there is no sin which is too big for him, no enemy too great for him. Even death cannot stop him. He will show mercy to his people. You know, Jonah learned that you can't outrun the might of God, but also that his mercy follows his might. He learned that we see what we see fully in Jesus. God is mighty, and although we may be tempted to run from the mighty God, to deny, cover up our brokenness, to act like it's all together, haven't we seen that in churches a lot in our lives? Who would never approach a church, some people do, because we want to hide our sin because we're afraid of a mighty God. You can't outrun him. Maybe, have you been trying to outrun him? Maybe, maybe you're a Christian who's kind of like Jonah. Maybe you've been running from the calling of God to make disciples, to evangelize, to carry the good news to a world that desperately needs it. Maybe you feel like it's too hard. 
Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you don't really want that difficult person to receive mercy and, and come and be a part of what God is doing, come and be a part of the church. Maybe you've just been running by staying still, doing nothing when you've been called into a new identity as a missionary child of God. Every Christian is called to be a maker of disciples. Jesus, in in the Great Commission, in, in, in Matthew 28, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. That call was for every believer from that time forward. Go, make disciples of all nations. It was for you if you are a believer in Jesus. Along with the promise, I'm with you in it. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Today is a day to recognise your own great need of mercy. To recognise that you are unqualifiedly equal in need. You need God's grace just as much as every person you meet. And he has powerfully, he has abundantly poured it out upon you. What he's done to you, he intends to do through you. And because he can do it to you, he can do it through you. Because you are detestable and you are sinful and he has saved you and made you new and made you a child of God. He can do that through you. There is no one who is so undeserving that you shouldn't leap at the chance to share the good news of Christ with them. It's not about deserving, it's about grace. Grace is by definition not deserved. And you know what? Maybe that's not you. Maybe you've been running from his saving grace. Have you perhaps wanted not to have to deal with God? You've been avoiding God, but today, now, God is catching up with you. And you feel like maybe you're in the middle of a storm right now. I have such good news. God has mightily pursued you so that he can show you his full and undeserved mercy in Jesus. God doesn't stand waiting, longing to destroy you for your sin. He longs to show you mercy. Jesus died to buy mercy for you. And if you will trust in him today, you will receive mercy and grace and freedom from all of your sin. He will overcome, he will welcome you in as a child. He's not a grumpy enemy waiting to destroy you. He is a loving Father who will embrace you. So believe and be saved today. Would you pray with me? Lord God, so often we like Jonah. We know your call upon us. but we don't want to go for whatever reason. Lord, 
We pray that today you would fill us with a vision of your might and your mercy. Remind us, Lord, of who you are. That you are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are gracious and merciful. That you, Lord, you are good to us. And Lord, remind us that no one is beyond your reach. And remind us, Lord, that we know that because we would not be on your reach. Make us a people who understand who we are. We are sent. And we are sent in your mercy to bring your mercy by your Spirit's power. Lord, I pray for anyone who hears this who has not received your mercy who has felt your might pursuing them but has fled because they felt that such a terrible thing was coming upon them that they could not handle it. I pray that today would be the day that they can turn by your spirit, that they can turn and see that what has pursued them is nothing but mercy, deliverance, salvation, freedom and joy in the name of Jesus. We pray that that person would come to believe in the crucified and risen Christ today. We pray this all in his beautiful, powerful name. Amen.